Welcome to the Train Rush, the Dear Deirdre of Train Game Podcasts. Well, not quite Dear Deirdre. It's more as if Deirdre was going around looking for other people's problems to inject herself into like some sort of agony aunt predator. I guess I'm kind of describing the Jeremy Kyle show there. <laughs> Today's episode is being brought to you by Cray Taylor and Joe Reese. Thanks for joining me, Joe. Oh, that's all right, Craig. It is always a pleasure. You say that. I know it's not always a pleasure. <laughs> You're very kind to take that for our audience. So, Joe, this episode was kind of, for want of a better term, conceived in your grey matter. Uh, the listeners will get the joke there momentarily. Do you want to explain to listeners what this episode's about? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a rabid consumer of podcasts, and I was listening to the Game Brain podcast while I was unloading my dishwasher the other day. Now, I'm, I'm a really big fan of um, Game Brain. I think they provide a good balance of entertaining board game discussion with some in-depth analysis of the games they play. But in one of their latest episodes, they made a few points about Age of Steam and 18xx that I thought could be expanded on. So in the great tradition of train gamers jumping on throwaway comments made by content producers, we could overanalyze every word spoken on the Game Brain episode, explore the subject, and potentially politely inform them how incorrect they are. I'm sure they'll relish that. Now, just for context, my expertise on Game Brain is somewhat less useful than Joe's. I did make a point of listening to the episode, and I'm specifically listening to this segment a few times to wrap my head around Dimitri's argument, which was... Uh, yeah, obviously a lot of effort went, was made in it, and it's an interesting argument, an uh, interesting little mini-essay, for want of a better term. But I don't listen to podcasts very much, and honestly, guys, I think as listeners, you shouldn't listen to podcasts either. <laughs> well, to be fair, the Train Rush podcast always goes to the very back of my podcast queue. As well it should, Joe, as it's utter garbage. <laughs> well, um, if you're not uh, aware of the Game Brain podcast, here's a fun fact for you. Uh, the Game Brain podcast has covered more about 18xx in the past eight months than the train rush has in the same period. Oh, I want to stop the recording now, Joe. That, I'm on fire. That burn. Outrageous. Outrageous. We've probably recorded more in the last eight months, but most of that tape's been burnt. Just like in the uh, Tiger King, burning all the evidence in the shed, but uh, no animals were hurt too seriously moving <laughs> swiftly on so um people can get a thrust of what we're talking about the first thing i would do is recommend that you do listen to the game brain podcast uh turn eight round three and the argument stroke essay starts about the one hour 27 minute mark it's about what makes games fun even when you're not playing well or more to point what aspects or um, elements a game can have that make it fun even if you aren't playing well that's the, the top-level stuff. Do you want to expand on that, please, Joe? Uh, yes, so it's in the episode with uh, Tishu being the main game they review. And one of the hosts, uh, Dimitri, suggests four factors he says contributes to how much potential there is to have fun in a heavy game, even when a player is playing badly. And these factors are directness, positive interaction, peaks and valleys, and randomness. So I think we should approach each factor and discuss their relevance in more detail, with Age of Steam and 18xx being the points of the focus, games that they suggested that potentially do not fulfil his criteria. 
And let's be fair to Game Brain, 18xx was mentioned as an aside at the end. Most of the focus was on Age of Steam. Yes, and Age of Steam actually only for a small part of the discussion. You know, I just want to be fair and provide the correct context. But can you dare mention train games and not expect the pitchforks to come out? <laughs> and I think we also need to, to a certain extent, pop out a little sidebar on our chat here about what Dimitri meant by fun. Fun is different from flow in Dimitri's definition. Uh, flow is that being good at something, getting engrossed in something, a view of time that's distorted from the real progression of time. Fun is effortless. Even when you're doing badly and you're just going through the ritual of playing the game, is the game intrinsically enjoyable to play? Yeah, there, there are many facets to fun. And I think it can obviously vary from person to person. It's um, an abstract concept, isn't it? But I think it's important in this case to try and stick to Dimitri's definition for the sake of argument and to test his model. So... Do Age of Steam and 18xx present the facets of fun that Dimitri describes? Um, so so the, first, the first point made was that fun is often sparked by something which is tangible or direct. So if something, a mechanism in a game, feels direct, has a, a real-life feeling that the action is very similar or identical to one which you would carry out in real life, so I guess um, the fun spawns from a, a feeling of being actively involved in a game that emulates a real-life feeling. They bring up auctions as a, a, a key example. When you're taking part in a, an auction in a game, that feels like a real-life auction because it is. Now, I listened to that argument and I shaped it in my mind, or refactored it for want of a better term, is when the abstraction approaches zero. So when you are enabling the action of the avatar in your game by doing the exact same thing, like you say, you place a bid as a person, your avatar in the game places a bid, as opposed to I place a worker on the board, therefore my avatar picks up some bricks. One of those is more abstract than the other. So taking that point that abstraction approaching zero is more fun you could argue then that a close alignment of the actions of the player to the actions of the avatar is the kind of wrap-up of this thing right how closely aligned throughout the course of the whole game are the actions you take that you physically take that you mentally take to the role that you're for want of a better term invoking in the game yes so being immersed in your role and the world your role uh, inhabits. I think 18xx does that exceptionally well. Let's think about the role then. Who are you when you're sitting down at the table for an 18xx game? What kind of what is the role that you're playing there? Do you think? Well, I'm a robber or a railway baron, according to Francis Tresham. So, <laughs> arguably both. So I'm a railway baron. I can't even say the word. I am a railway baron, Joe. It's been a long time, but I'm glad you finally admit that, Craig. What else have you uh, got to confess? Well, many sins, Joe. But specifically, I'm a financier. I'm an engineer. I am, although I'm an engineer at the most abstract of levels. Build a line from here and here. You make it happen, Mr. Engineer Team. The person with the big ideas, but you're not going into the technical detail about how you 
go about doing that. Sounds like this podcast, but yes, something like that. I'm the CEO, for want of a better term, in modern parlance. I'm the guy who's providing the overall strategic direction. I want to build a line from Minneapolis to St. Louis, and I'm willing to pay $20 to make it happen. That's the kind of level I'm engaging with. And in 18xx, when you're buying a share in a company, you take your own personal finances and you buy that share in that company, don't you? The actual manipulating of finances feels very real. You've got your treasury, uh, the company's treasury, you've got your own personal finances, and that money management feels utterly real, I think, when you're in that magic circle of the game. It's outstandingly direct. That's one of the things I find when I step back to playing a modern euro is you've got the sort of three degrees of separation of calculating the real value of a brick, you know, versus <laughs> versus victory points. OK, I'm paying two magic money for this and I'm placing a worker and out of it I get a brick. And if I put the brick into the brick kiln, I get a golden brick. Then at the end of the game, it's worth 3.27 victory points. I know which one of those feels more direct and relatable to me as an actor. In comparison, I guess Age of Steam places you in a a similar role, but it could be argued that the actions you take are more gamified, I think. You may issue shares, but there is no physical representation of that, just a a counter moving up a slider and a reduction in income at the end of the round, which is also tracked by a counter on a scoreboard. The auctions, which are the key feature in Age of Steam, I think, are incredibly tense, but it's not like we're in a used locomotive auction house bidding on something more grounded in reality. We're bidding for turn order, and turn order is another abstraction that, I guess, distances us from the immersion in that rail baron role. It's basically a constant reminder, isn't it, that we're playing a board game. And in 18xx, we've got priority, and that's important, but it's approached less directly. What's more, the auction in Age of Steam is an opportunity to compete for special abilities outside of the role a company president would normally have, like building an entire city, uh, a yellow city, to signify that the residents will only accept yellow goods within the, the city limits. I hate to say it, Joe, but 18xx is just as ridiculous there, but carry on. Looking at the track, I guess building track and delivering goods does feel closer to reality if you accept that this world rewards sending goods down the most inefficient routes. Anyway, I I think that's all I have to say about Age of Steam under this point. Uh, Do you have any more to say about the tangible nature of 18xx? No, I guess not. I mean, I think anybody who plays 18xx, apart from the questionable involvement of rail barons in the construction of cities although i guess we could write that off as them building extra terminals at the station for more revenue i think most players will struggle to think of mechanisms for mechanisms sake in the affair is that true maybe that's a bit too grand um maybe i just end that with no (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 can you think of any mechanisms for mechanism sake where you think that's just too much and it's pulling me out of this game I've now gone out of sort of full-on inverted commas role-play mode. And I don't, of course, I don't really mean role-play mode, but I mean engaged in the persona and just lifts me away from it and goes, oh, that was quite jarring. Can you think of any mechanisms in any 18xx games you've played that leave you feeling like that? Um, how about shares from the bank pool paying to the company? I think that's a reasonable one. Yes, that's, a, that's, actually, that's actually an excellent one. 
I always have to explain that as this will make no sense to you, but trust me, mechanically it works. It's a big leap to ask, isn't it? And so when you compare full capitalization with shares in the bank paying to the company, 1830 style, to incremental capitalization, uh, 1846 style, where shares on the charter pay the company, I know which one of those makes more sense. Can we imagine that the company is holding those shares? I know, I, I don't know, that's the only way I can thematically tie it in. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, the fact that you're having to reach and grasp for arguments to tie it in, rather than intrinsically tying in with no effort on your part as a consumer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of akin to watching Bruce Willis walking around New York in a chicken suit and saying, no, he is a cop. You just got to let the chicken suit go. Yeah, yeah. There's a reason he's wearing the chicken suit, I'm sure. And then at the end of the film, it's never explained why he was wearing the chicken suit. It doesn't make any sense. And any reaching for you, for there's a big reason behind the chicken suit, is just you grasping and trying to make the thing work. How about um, restrictions on track? Oh, no, we've run out of tight bends. There's no possible way of uh, making this engineering feat now. How much abstraction are you willing to accept? for a game to work. For instance, I'll give an example, like Game Brain, they talk about Avalon as an example of directness or the resistance, my preferred flavour of it. Well, why can't I defect and join the winning team? Because of the rules, right? Mm-hmm. I think the spies are winning, so I want to defect and join the spy team now. Well, because the rules say you can't, right? The rules say you're a spy or you're a loyalist at the start of the game, and that's that. To a certain extent, with games with a rule structure, as opposed to like a more freeform sandbox role-playing game style affair you've got to accept some restrictions but if the actual activities when you pull a lever that doesn't feel convoluted i think that's okay yeah and i think uh, i agree with you we're trying to kick the tires on the point right mm. like if we're not willing to examine our own propositions it's not a very exciting podcast right it's <laughs> it's more like an infomercial so the next argument is games which have positive interaction so when you have stakes in someone else's actions and when you can benefit from others actions i think the point was made that that maybe a lot of negative interaction doesn't feel so great and of course there's a lot of negative interaction in 18xx or age of steam but you can also argue with 18xx that there's tremendous amount of positive interaction too totally agreed i mean this kind of reminds me of a, a game of lignum i played the other evening now lignum's one of my favorite sort of modern euros from capstone but i wouldn't say the interaction in it is in any way positive the game provides you with this positive landscape at the start of each round of options that may help you in your bid to survive the winter's wood drought or whatever a paucity of wood is called but as you traverse the rondelle and race towards the clearings to chop the wood you want it becomes rapidly apparent that the only thing that you're really doing is watching your opponents take stuff that you could use or hoping they take the stuff that you don't want. But at no stage has anybody set anything up for you to leverage. Mm -hmm. The the impact of their turns on your gaming world being a reduction of your options and nothing more. Now, in 18xx, when someone takes an action, big swathes of the game's arc, there's opportunities born from that action be it you getting value off the revenue centre they upgraded, maybe you placing a token further down the line because they've opened up a hole in the city, allow you to shoot your token through somewhere you're really interested in. Maybe in the share round, someone sold a load of shares and they look like great value for you to pick up. And to be fair to the podcast, they do relate board games to businesses and how quite often your competitor will open up an opportunity for you. 
And that is very true in 18xx. And it's all about jumping on those opportunities and seeing which company is doing the best and buying all the shares and reaping their dividends. Or sometimes a free five train, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. A um, little inside joke there. Which I don't find remotely funny, Craig. Uh I mean, look, anybody who's played 18xx can see that there is the possibility for positive interaction in 18xx. Of course, there's negative interaction riven through it. But it's not the hard blocking of worker placement and actually all the other players are doing is getting in your way. There's a bit more to it than that. Sure. And I'd actually argue that the positive interaction does come with an element of risk, which actually increases the thrill and the fun for me, um, which we can return to later on. So when it comes to Age of Steam, I think there are fewer opportunities for positive interaction. Um, the prime example would be making deliveries over other people's lines and uh, their income increasing as a result of that. But most of the time, I think players are desperately working out ways to reduce this, or they might draw a good down someone's line a short way to ensure that the cube isn't taking a longer route your opponent would have preferred. You can also bump someone's income into a new threshold for income reduction, uh, which can obviously negatively infect the player's overall position. So anyway, uh, what's next? Peaks and valleys. Yeah, so the next point, this is really where it piqued my interest, <laughs> because there was a direct comment about Age of Steam and 18xx here. The idea being that Age of Steam and 18xx can feel like a real uphill slog. That there's a struggle, it's a struggle, it's a struggle, and then the game ends. It was posited that maybe that if both of those games had a mechanism in which you were able to celebrate successes and reflect on those, or even have momentary losses and have the chance to celebrate later. If, it, if the games are more like a roller coaster, you wouldn't feel like you were being beaten down the entire game. And they suggest that maybe more players would be psychologically more open to the games, if so. What do you think about that, Craig? Age of Steam and 18xx don't start you in the same place. I think, although they're both train games, the setups for them are very different. In Age of Steam, you're explicitly in debt. You're working against the governor that is the machine and it's saying you are losing blah around until you sort it out. In 18xx, you are started with a pool of money and you can choose to spend it or not. And those who spend it the most efficiently will do well. And those who spend it inefficiently will do poorly, but you're not starting with negative money and rolling losses. So for me, I wouldn't say that 18xx is an uphill slog in the same way Age of Steam could be defined as, you know, struggle, struggle, struggle. Ooh, I've just got over the brim of that hill at the end. Mm. Right? You could argue that you might get yourself into a losing position and feel like you can't get out of it. Sure, but you can do that in almost any game, right? Like, you can get yourself behind the curve and am I dead by being slow or am I dead by being killed? Well, a loss is a loss, right? You know, am I last in the foot race or have I been knocked out in a boxing ring? Well, a loss is a loss is a loss, right? Hmm. In terms of Age of Steam, I do think the uphill struggle is uh, too simple a summary of the experience myself. And I think Age of Steam is fun. Well, can be fun. And it is fun for me because it's a game where all the players are dancing on a razor blade. So 
while you're issuing shares, you're bidding the turn order, selecting your special ability, building the rail and delivering the goods, there's always the potential for a player to make a detrimental mistake. And the thrill of those tense decisions doesn't make me feel like it's a constant uphill struggle without fluctuation, because there are peaks and troughs in the manner of the stress and the relief. Sure, there's emotional peaks and troughs, but are there positional peaks and troughs? Yeah, okay, I don't know, maybe you're right. And actually, maybe I'm straying into what I find fun in the game, uh, rather than focus on the the argument or the, the model at hand. But talking about positional peaks and troughs, I suppose to some extent the rich come into the auction with the upper hand, but there is a dance around pushing your luck and encouraging the leader to spend more to secure their needed place in the turn order. And that overspend can be detrimental. It can you know, potentially topple that player and rise someone else to the top. And because the game is a constant balancing act of decisions, it's highly likely a player will make a mistake adjusting the, the game positions and allowing opportunities for victory and failure along the way. Then again, those those moments where everyone is just on the edge of toppling, uh, toppling over the into the abyss of doom, trying to balance everything perfectly and pushing at each other to try and force a mistake, that's often a moment where you end up laughing at others and laughing at yourself for making those mistakes. And surely that ties into Dimitri's definition of fun. But well, shall we get real a second? Like, let's talk, let's talk about an example of a game of Age of Steam that we were both in, right? I'm, this is not to shame Joe, for the record. <laughs> I mean, I've done this myself, so to be clear, anything I'm referencing about Joe, I have done myself. So you remember that time you were covered head to tra- toe in treacle, Joe, and you walked into the strip club? No, sorry. Um, do you remember that game we played at, I think it was Jonathan's house, or it might have been City of Games, I think it's happened twice, where you managed to put yourself into a position where you were bankrupted turn two or turn three i think at jonathan's house it was because it was a very weird map where the cube flow was quite hard to internalize was it taiwan cube factory it was taiwan cube factory yeah and you just put yourself in a position where you didn't have anything you could effectively deliver boom 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 for your dead did you have fun playing badly yes because at that point i felt as if it was the game versus myself And that particular map design is so mean, it is more about which player will manage not to go bankrupt rather than to celebrate in a glorious victory. Okay. Part of this, I think, is there's there's a thing here that I think ties into wider observations on human nature as well, perhaps. How seriously do you take yourself? Because I know that when I play games, if I do badly... I don't tend to bruise, okay? I tend to take it as a challenge to be better next time. I know some players that feel quite rough about the act of losing and feel it invalidates them in some way and as such won't revisit games that provide an experience that doesn't, for want of a better term, cushion them Mm. from that feeling of failure. Yeah, I'm fairly carefree, I think. Um, I think the fun I have in a game is more about the immediate challenge. So if I can improve over a series of games, then maybe that's a happy side effect. But I treat it as an isolated moment of challenge. I'm not particularly motivated by 
self-improvement. But of course, I do feel the reward if I do notice myself getting better at a particular game or activity. But nor do I feel particularly demotivated by playing badly either. I guess my point I'm making there is that age of steam isn't one of those ones that I would say cushions me from my failures. What's the engaging activity I do whilst I'm losing? So taking Dimitri's argument, and I'm trying to steel man it here, and I'm sure he could make it better himself. A game being fun whilst you're not being good needs to have other activities, I guess, other qualities that engage you in ways that aren't related to your victory or your climbing towards it. Yes, sure. Well, um, with Age of Steam, if you get eliminated, you could just go and watch TV. Then you're not playing Age <laughs> of Steam, right? So that's that artifact. <laughs> very, very good. But, and I guess, right, there's probably there's more to this argument than I care to admit, okay? Because some of the player conventions around 18xx play until somebody loses because once somebody loses, they start doing irrational things because otherwise they're doing nothing, okay? Play until you have your first loser. That's a common thing amongst 18xx players. I'm not saying it's, you know, I mean, we don't play that way very often, not unless the loser is absolutely apparent and the winner is absolutely apparent but there's lots of groups that do play that way why do you, do you think that ties into this sense of well it's no fun playing if you're losing mm. I, I don't feel that way with 18xx mainly because i feel like i have agency i feel like i've got the tools to disrupt things most of the time but also i i guess i guess i don't feel bad sitting there and allowing someone else to take a victory as well. I guess that's my perspective on it. I'd, I wouldn't want, I would want, let's say, to see Lucy get her deserved victory rather than me articulating about how much I feel rubbish because I'm definitely not going to win again. It kind of takes something away from the victor, doesn't it? A little bit. That, that's my perspective. I agree with you in the sense that having been on the whole, oh, let's just give Craig the win perspective that win never actually feels as good as the win where you got to see the arc of the game on the flip side nor do i want to engage in a crushing parade knowing i'm going to win and everybody else at the table has psychologically resigned and literally resigned no no we're going to play this out so you can see just how much better i am than you today so balancing all things i guess mm -hmm. yeah i i think that definitely applies to players who are new to 18xx anyway there have been times when I've quite visibly lost a game and you've quite visibly displayed your almighty victory. But I don't feel too bad of denying you of that because you have definitely seen more than your fair share of victories, I think. Anyway, I, I know you have a point about calling games when players think they're done. Uh, what did you want to say about that? I often think that games are called too early. Let me explain. Talking to the beginner's perspective and accessibility through peaks and valleys in 18xx, I often think that there are options for the training players to create peaks and valleys, but they just aren't aware of them. Because whilst you're learning to grapple with the big levers and the small levers, it can be very easy just to see a position where you go, I'm behind, they're making more money than me, their line's doing this you know, their total value line, and mine's flatter, therefore I've lost. And until you learn 
which lever to pull to adjust those vectors, it can feel like it's a foregone conclusion and a parade. The problem with perfect information games, or games that don't invoke randomness into the system, it's on the players to create those peaks and valleys. So there's kind of an education element there. Mm. In a similar vein, talking about how these games end, should we look at bankruptcy and player elimination? Now, I don't want to go into too much detail because, see, bankruptcy in 18xx could be a subject to wider conversation, but it's often a game-ending feature. So you play to a position where you can be victim of bankruptcy, and that's okay because everyone's going to stop playing now. Player elimination is a feature used in in some titles, like 1817, for example, but it's a defining feature of the core Age of Steam rules. and you know, most Age of Steam maps. I think that player elimination often makes the game, right? It's giving you that feeling of tension, that feeling that there can be a roller coaster ride because someone could be dragged down into the spiral of doom and chucked out of the game, and you don't want it to be you, right? You're walking on a tightrope, and other players are bouncing up and down on it. And those jumps and bounces are also the peaks and valleys in the game, right? And I think also that that player elimination, that that does give that sense of absolute dread. It's that doom that you might be able to avoid, a position you might be able to claw yourself away from. And that could be seen as a momentary victory. Alternatively, player elimination could be seen as sweet relief. If you aren't doing so well in the game, if you are playing badly, then you can exit the game and it allows you to do that. Sure, and you could argue that the quality of the whole artefact is richer for the fact there's jeopardy involved. Yes, agreed. That, That bankruptcy lends jeopardy, which lends the whole thing more emotional resonance. And going back to your anecdote, when I was playing in Bristol with you at the City of Games convention, it was, oh, I don't know, 10.30, I'd been playing a whole load of heavy games that day. And actually, the game, maybe it was its way of telling me that I wasn't in the right frame of mind to play Age of Steam, and it kicked me out of the game in turn two, which is a big shame, and it will I will remember this to my dying breath. Uh, but... I was able to then go and have fun spending time walking around the convention hall and catching up with others. So there was there was fun in that. <laughs> mm, oh, philosophically, I'm not sure it's a very strong argument for Age of Steam, is it really? This game is so much fun that you can go and walk around a convention and have more of a fun time than playing the actual game. This game will free you up to do something else like get a sandwich. Isn't the strongest advert. Um, we'll, we'll try and get it on the next printing of the box. The train rush says Age of Steam nearly as much fun as a sandwich. (laughs) Yeah. Forget the box. I want to see Age of Steam themed sandwiches. (laughs) Should we go into the final point then? Randomness was brought up. And I think there was a mixture there of game randomness, but also an element of unknown information being fun. So having those opportunities to guess, guess at what the game might throw at you but also guess at what other players might be working on. And there being an element of uh, bluffing in the game, for example. Sure. Well, first of all, I'll just go back to Age of Steam and just talk about that and the randomness, which you've already hinted at. You know what goods will arrive 
in each city, but you don't know when and in which order. And this kind of injects those uneven moments within the game state. The way I liken to it is, is throwing an odd number of bones to a pack of starving wolves, right? And it forces players to reach out and strangle their opponents. And sometimes you will be the alpha wolf, and sometimes you'll be a mongrel. But that status can flit from person to person throughout the game. There will be moments where you're sitting on a big pile of blue cubes (laughs) or something like that, right? But those could be dragged away from you, and now you're in a position of drought and you don't have those. Age of Steam does have that element of randomness, which does provide that roller coaster ride and those moments of success and triumph and also failure. I mean, Age of Steam, your mileage may vary depending on the map you use. Please consult a physician before use, um, <laughs> etc. So I agree, Age of Steam does randomness very well, but what a player is likely to do, I don't think it does ambiguity very well. So you talk about bluffing and trying to read players. I would argue that is ambiguity, okay? Reading a player's intent. Mm-hmm. With Age of Steam, what they're ultimately trying to achieve is obvious. What they're, the, the ways they're kind of, they're, they're going to do it are fairly narrow compared to 18xx, right? They're going to try and steal your cubes. They're going to try and build into a city before you do. And as the game goes further on, the targets for those builds become more and more obvious, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. There's a, there's a lot of second-guessing in the auction, uh, particularly around how much to bid, because you want to ensure you're the one to win the special ability uh, that you desperately need. And I think there's a lot of tension built around guessing what your opponents may need and potentially taking that away from them too. Oh, no, of course. Of course, sorry. No, I'm, I'm measuring this versus 18xx, whereas 18xx is a perfect information game, right? So the randomness isn't there. Hmm except in the odd title. But the ambiguity is off the chart because when I start a company, you don't know if I'm starting it to run it well. You don't know if I'm starting it just because I want to steal some capital from it. You don't know which direction I'm going to build with the company. You've got next to no idea, really, how I'm going to use that company beyond some very broad brush strokes. No, that's right. And actually, um, what I really love about 18xx is trying to make those predictions and taking that risk. You know, buying more than one share in your opponent's company, thinking that maybe the benefits of the payout will outweigh the risk of the company being looted and dumped on you. Indeed. And then there's that kind of nested ambiguity. Okay, I've started this company. If too many people buy into it, then I will treat it badly. If nobody buys into it, then I will treat it well. I think you can have that unknown information living purely in the players' heads and the activity still be fun. For me, randomness is a function to level the playing field between the skilled, the experienced, for a better term, and the inexperienced. What is the function of randomness? I wouldn't argue it's necessarily purely fun. It can be fun. There's an intrinsic fun element in it. But I would argue its primary function is to allow more skilled players and less skilled players to be able to engage in the same activity and still feel like there's a game in there, i.e. the winner stroke loser isn't certain. Yes, I agree in a lot of games. I think in Age of Steam, though, 
the randomness is to force interaction between the players. It's, like I said, to give that uneven distribution across the map, you're going to have to build across the map to steal away the cubes from other players. Or are you going to have to plan around eventualities? What if that city doesn't produce the goods that I need when I need them? Sure. I broadly agree with that. I guess I was really talking at the kind of the macro satellite view level as opposed to specifically on Age of Steam. Yeah, sure, sure, I agree. With Age of Steam, there is a degree of randomness in a lot of the maps with rolling the dice to see where the cubes are going to fall and sometimes a leader's position, someone who's got great structural value in their track and they think they've hedged, it can just absolutely go to heck because their cubes never pop out. Okay, You can be playing well at Age of Steam and still lose, effectively. It's not going to happen very often because good players will hedge and create their networks all over the board so they can stand to benefit from wherever they are. But I've played games on small type maps where my little loop that should feed me well, the cubes just don't pop out soon enough. And that's that. I'm skint when I need to have money to build track. Bad luck. With 18xx, where does that happen? It's a perfect information game. So if you are thrown into deep water or you aren't competing, you're behind the curve relative to the other players, that's nothing the game's done to you. That's something the other players have done to you or you've allowed to happen to you. And that perception of I'm behind the curve and therefore I am now dead, I think that is a beginner's perspective. Like, in in many cases, it's true. I don't think it's true as often as people think it is. Because with, I'm talking absolute beginners here, David Bowie, absolute beginners. (laughs) They have this marriage between themselves and the companies they start. And losing the presidency is a bad thing. You know, inverted commas, you know, in their head, it's just intrinsic. Oh, I know I am this company, right? Once you decouple and you realize that the company is a vehicle and you are your player and the, your money is the thing that matters to your victory in the end you can do things like i'm going to sell down this company that's bad and buy up these companies that seem good or i can do a float storm okay the, the current situation's not benefiting me right now in this big jar of rocks my rocks are at the bottom and they're going to stay at the bottom unless i do something when they just steam that mechanism would be the randomization of the cubes coming out and hopefully the cubes come out in the right place and will save me if I've painted myself into a hole vis-a-vis track lay. But with, with 18xx, the player can sell all their shares and start a new company, bringing new money into the game potentially, shake up the box of rocks, and hopefully the new permutation of the box of rocks will have my rocks on the top. Yes, agreed. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of agency in 18xx, which actually goes back to the first point of that directness. You have that pile of money you can direct that money, withdraw it, spend it. You have complete control over what you do with your cash. Sure. And sometimes you have control over what other people do with their cash. Some of the best games of 1830, their capital control exercises where you sell down your shares. It's a race to sell your shares first to extricate the value because the share damage stops other players being as liquid and reduces their options. There's very few games that do that. I mean, that's for me, that talks about the interactiveness that uh, Game Brain uh, Dimitri spoke to about being invested in other people's actions, be it positively or negatively. Oh, they sold their shares. Darn it, now I've got less options. You know, I care that they sold their shares. Or, perversely, oh, they didn't sell their shares. Right, well, I'm going to sell mine and make them less liquid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, to summarise that, I guess it can be argued that randomness in Age of Steam can elevate frustration in the game but it can prevent the arguably better players from winning and from no fault of their own. Uh, Whereas in 18xx, the players have given all the tools to elevate their position 
and it will be their fault if they do not grapple with these. And so that's the challenge you must work with in both of these games. And and I guess that challenge is actually the antithesis of what Dimitri is <laughs> defining as fun. For the record, I'm going to sound like I'm really anti-Age of Steam. I'm not anti-Age of Steam. I just think that when you compare Age of Steam to 18xx and my early experiences of kind of clambering through them, when I was bad at Age of Steam versus other players at the table, the participation aspect of it was not fun because you would bankrupt early, you would be seeing people explode past you on the points and you'd never have any opportunity to catch up. In Age of Steam, when you're doing badly, tough luck. There's very little catching up as a beginner and I didn't derive very much joy from that. With 18xx against experienced players, you can certainly go through the motions. I think as a blind baby rabbit kind of just bimbling around trying to experience the world, I found 18xx a much more positive novice experience. Yeah, 18xx allows you more time to explore its space. You're still expanding your company. You're still earning money. Whereas in Age of Steam, you could be actively spiraling out of control, unable to win auctions, unable to build track unable to make deliveries. If we're discussing our initial impressions, I found finding the fun in the games to be the opposite of your experience. I played my first game of 18xx, it was 1889, as the teacher of the game I'd never played to friends who also had no 18xx experience. And this harkens back to what you said about novice players not being able to see the levers. And as a result, and I think it's probably quite common amongst new 18xx players, I think. It produced a long and not particularly interesting game. However, I was motivated to continue exploring the genre simply because I I knew that there was kind of an untapped excitement that we'd not yet quite released. And that gradually opened up as I played more often and with more players of different experience levels. Age of Steam, however, it just had more impact. It wallops you round the head. It reveals itself more quickly. It's blunt and painful, and it's comparatively quick. It also helped that I was playing against relatively equal opponents, but novices, and I was able to win my first game. And, and so maybe that set me up in a position to look more favourably on the game from the outset. Having tasted victory... I don't feel too crushed about my many, many disastrous plays since. So let's round it up, right? Like, I've just to talk briefly, I think this episode from Game Brain is well worth a listen. I think the whole argument is predicated on fun being this given thing that fun is effortless. To a certain extent, if fun is a subset of enjoyment, in Dimitri's definition, I'm probably not that into fun in my strategic games. I'm probably more into things like a journey of mastery. Now, would you call that sense of achievement or enjoyment or satisfaction? I definitely like to work for the payoff. And if the payoff just happens as I go along, I'm not convinced that's something that I find particularly engaging. Yeah, and when I think of the fun inherent in Age of Steam and 18xx, I think of immersion, problem-solving, competition, risk and reward, that thrill of danger and the, the feeling of creation and progression too, as well as the, uh, the social interaction and the humour 
that is born from the in-game situations. And like you said earlier, maybe that fun grows from a, a place in my mind where I don't take the games too seriously. Taking a quick look back at the original arguments, though, uh, let's see how Age of Steam and Athenex stand up under uh, Dimitri's requirements. I think throughout the course of this conversation, we've been saying that Athenex games are incredibly direct, do promote positive interaction between players, um, the peaks and valleys are player-driven, and there's an intense amount of ambiguity and player-generated randomness. So that's four out of four. Age of Steam, however, probably does have a weaker case throughout each of these points. Aside from its uh, randomness, which can also be argued to create negative feelings as much as positive. So there you go. Age of Steam is probably not a game you can have fun with when playing poorly. But 18xx, you definitely can. And while this response to the Game Brain episode was really just an excuse to talk around some themes, we can safely say that Dimitri is 50% completely wrong according to his own argument. And the Resistance, with all its available expansions, is far superior to Avalon. Hopefully this free-form pseudo-intellectual chat was an interesting thing that was worth listening to. If not, feel free to drop us an email. If so, feel free to put it somewhere more public. Oh, I, I tell you what, I would love another podcast to criticise this podcast of us criticising the original podcast. Podception, if you will, Joe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So you're about to hear the usual guff at the end about how you can get in touch with us. Honestly, please do. The engagement is what makes this whole endeavour absolutely worth it. So thank you so much for making the time. And uh, if you're interested in more Game Brain episodes, uh, listeners should check out episode round six, turn one, where they review 1862. You've been listening to The Train Rush. If you'd like to talk to the people behind the show, you can reach us on Twitter, at The Train Rush. You can engage with us via pictures using Instagram, the underscore train underscore rush. You can contact us on Facebook, search for The Train Rush. Alternatively, you can email us, craig at thetrainrush.com. If you prefer your engagement as more of an open forum, why not come to our Board Game Geek Guild, number 3342. Thank you for listening.